The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Age of Volatility. We're back. This is the Return to Volatility edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, which means, first and foremost, your guide to what on earth is going on in the stock market. It goes up, it goes down, it goes down, it goes up. It is all over the place, and there's this thing called volatility, which I had kind of forgotten existed, but it turns out... It does. It was hibernating. It was merely hibernating. It is back, so we're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about... The man who probably loves volatility more than any other man in the world, Mr. Stevie Cohen. If you love men who love volatility, then you will love the fact that you can give Stevie Cohen your money now. Um, And we're going to talk about food delivery in New York because there's something really interesting is like about whether about I guess what you'd call additionality. That's I'm going to leave it at that as a kind of like tantalizing, t- tantalizing, an appetizer. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's it's us. It's we few, we three, me, Felix Salmon, Anna Shamansky, and Jordan Weissman. Hello, hello. Um, we are. Let's start talking about um, stock market volatility because hey, I mean, I've I've already lost track of what happened last week. I mean, it started. I guess the. Friday before, there was a big drop, yeah. 666 points. I remember that because yes. it was devilish. And then we had this crazy sort of 1,500-point drop on Monday. And then the Tuesday, it went down 500 and then ended up 500. And then Wednesday went down and Thursday went up and Friday went down. Like, it's been all over the place. And this is surprising, not necessarily because stocks are volatile because stocks have often been volatile but mainly because just stocks haven't been volatile for so long they've just been sort of pootling along and not moving at all and now suddenly they're moving so anna as the capital markets person why why are they moving why are they moving why has volatility returned well whenever anyone tries to tell you that there is one reason why stocks have moved they are inevitably wrong can you just give me like three then yes So, as many other people have said, we know that the more robust than expected jobs numbers, as well as a few other factors, imply that there may be higher inflation. We may have potentially a fourth rate hike this year. And that started to spook the equities market. So, that would explain perhaps why stocks fell. That, um, like, I guess one simple way of putting it is that. People are making more money, which means there's less money. There's more money for labor, less money for capital, and the stock market goes down. Or you can you can spin this in a bunch of different ways about discounted cash flows and discount. Well, rates yes, I mean if you're if your potential numerator is getting smaller than you expected, and your denominator is getting bigger than expected, your value is going to yeah. be lower right. than you expect. And so that and that would explain directionally why stocks might go down but it doesn't explain the volatility and why like you know we had like them go up by a thousand points in one day well we have our dead cat bounces <laughs> well, so, so i mean m- the line that's getting repeated a lot is that when inflation comes back and interest rates start going up 
that creates that just creates change and that creates the possibility that funky things are going to happen and things are less predictable. We've had this zero interest rate environment or close to it for years now, essentially, and you can't count on it anymore. And so people, you know, all of a sudden kind of weirdly realized that even though the numbers that kind of inspired the initial drop, that jobs report actually shouldn't have surprised people. I mean, there are lots yeah. of reasons yeah, economically yeah, exactly. it should not have surprised people, but it just, it seems to have dawned on the market all at once. And so now they're trying, it seems like they're trying to price that in and overreacting. So yeah, I feel like it's not even overreacting. My my view here is that if you just go back to your thing that no one actually does, but everyone thinks that everyone does, which is look at stock prices as the present value of future cash flows i've had to say to so many economists that nobody does that like <laughs> like just yes. like oh my god there have been so many economists being like well they it's irrational for them to drop because like productivity no nobody but, yeah, but, but the way. fact is that it's on some level um you know there are a bunch of discounted cash flow types out there who like to try and value stocks that way and a very small difference in the discount rate you apply to those future cash flows when the rates are this low can mean an absolutely enormous Mm -hmm. difference in the value of the stock and so if your idea of what the proper discount rate is is floating around by like 10 or 20 basis points that more than explains whatever volatility we're seeing in in the stock market so Let's talk about the volatility index, though. The yeah, let's talk because, about the most important thing. So, this, well, let's this, talk this about the, the most XIV. interesting thing. The XIV. So, the the other part of the story that um, I think the person who wrote the best thing on it was our very own the Codfather, Robin Boyle's <laughs> work. Uh, he had a great explanation in Financial Times, but was about these weird financial products that were sort of tar- meant to target or make bets on volatility or lack thereof, and some people were essentially blaming. Um, them for just kind of uh, exacerbating everything that was going on. And I'm curious, Anna, if you think that was accurate or. or I think with the move we saw at the close in the VIX suggests that this almost certainly was related to those short fall products. Okay, let's 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 take a step back and start talking in English here. Okay, Um, There is a thing called the VIX, which is often in the press referred to as the fear gauge, but it's not really a fear gauge. It's really just a measure of the amount that people expect the stock market to be moving over the next month or two. And you can trade this. VIX, the V in VIX stands for volatility. And you can trade the futures. You can trade the futures. You can basically bet that volatility is going to be high or it's going to be low or it's going to be go up or it's going to go down. And Anything you can trade eventually becomes an ETF. And so what happened is you wound up, first of all, getting VIX ETFs where you could buy them if you thought volatility ETPs, actually. And then, or, you know, sell them if you you thought it was going to go down. And then eventually, because obviously there was a demand for it, there was this thing which was geniusly called the XIV, which is VIX backwards, which um, literally just did the VIX backwards. And so instead of buying buying it when you thought volatility was going up, you thought it, you'd buy it when you thought volatility was going down. Right. So you might think, why would somebody want to buy VIX futures? And part of that could actually be initially insurance against market volatility, because if the VIX is going to be going up when market when your stock portfolio in theory is going to be going down, that can somewhat 
help you hedge in theory. Although, in, no. or, or, you, or you, it just doubles your money. In the case of like in November, we saw that famous melt up in, this, in the mm-hmm. stock market. We had a, volatility went up and your stocks went up and then you get to make money. Right, twice. exactly. Guys, do you remember now, when I asked if it was possible to like make bets on the VIX and make money off them? And you guys looked at me like, <laughs> I, like rightfully looked at me like I was an idiot because I was like, well, well, no, basically this, like a little well, child Reddit, trying to touch a stove. It, it, turns, <laughs> it turns out that Reddit is full of people who made like $4 million by betting against the VIX or betting on XIV. Yeah. And there was this, an XIV is, was this exchange traded product which just went up and up and up. And people started thinking of it as like this great investment. And of course, it's not an investment. It's a no. trade. And this is a really, really important distinction. And then it ended in tears. Wiped this- out in one day. <laughs> yeah, this is important. The prospectus for this product said the expected long-term value of this security is zero. This is not an instrument you were expected to hold long-term because it's, of the nature of how the VIX moves. It's a day-to-day hedging instrument it's a trading instrument and what people did was they held it for a day they held it for two days they held it for three days and they realized that the longer they held it for the more money they were making and then they just started thinking that it was an investment so there's actually something interesting there like kind of a a secondary story, but I think it's worth noting about kind of exchange-traded funds and exchange-traded notes and the role they play in the market right now, which is it seems like they're allowing day traders to do some really hairy trades, right? Like essentially they're a lot like, Absolutely. like back in the day, that is probably not something a few like in, like investment, like, uh, you know, uh, some amateur investors would have tried to get in on, whereas now you have an entire Reddit board. It's like, this, oh yeah, I can bet on volatility. <laughs> this is really important actually because- the idea of selling vol or, you know, kind of selling vol short used to be something that was only engaged in by hedge funds. Yeah. Really more sophisticated investors. And then with and not di- even most hedge funds. I remember oh, when yeah. I, was, I was talking about vol traders in the financial crisis around 2008 and most hedge funds wouldn't touch it back then. And like there were, vol trading was this crazy recondite weird thing where you needed like PhDs and it was super, super hard. And now, as you say, there's a Reddit board. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because then they developed these products that anyone can just invest in. And you have people who look at it and they say, oh, well, it's going up and it's going up and people are making so much money. It's like the Bitcoin of these financial products. And so they're, I want to get in. And then whenever anything looks too good to be true, you know it's going to decline. And something like this is essentially designed to at some point decline. Well, but so I, I'm kind of wondering if this is actually a preview of, of things to come in a way that you're going to because we, we've been talking about the proliferation of these weird ETFs like that just have all sorts of different stuff programmed into them that aren't your mom, you know, that aren't your just vanilla you know, Vanguard shares or whatever. Um so, I mean, yeah, are, are, is this something we can kind of expect more I, I would say no. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go out there and say, well, well, yes and no. On one hand, I think we now live in a world with what you might call a post-Bitcoin world where there's always, <laughs> Jesus. there's always going to be like some really stupid speculative investment out there, whether it's Bitcoin, some other cryptocurrency, some recondite exchange-traded note, something or other. If you really want to make a stupid investment with your money, there are there is going to be no shortage of stupid investments you can make with your money. And some of them are going to have, you know, 100x returns and people are going to get very rich and then they're going to lose all of the money. And, you know, 
all of these headlines we're seeing right now. Um, on the other hand, I don't see any evidence that the proportion of money in exchange-traded funds is anything other than just more and more being centered on the really big, boring index funds. I somewhat disagree with you. I agree that the vast majority of money is going into those boring funds, but what we just saw with these two products that are actually quite small, only about like $3 billion, 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 $1 billion, $2 billion, they're they're pretty small. Yeah. You were able to create a feedback loop that then had large, uh, you know, larger impact than what that size would suggest. I disagree. I there, there's been a lot of talk about how the amount of exposure to XIV and other short vol products in some way caused the volatility, and because like when you buy that, there's a bunch of what's known as delta hedging, which needs to be done by the people selling those products. And like, and that somehow if a lot of people make a bet on short volatility, that creates volatility in some way. I really don't buy it, much like I don't buy the argument that there's this other argument going around right now about what's known as risk parity, mm-hmm. yeah. um, that there's this like... Um, uh, Ray Dalio and various other people love this idea of risk parity, which is that you want to keep a constant risk in your p- portfolio and that when volatility spikes, that means the risk in your portfolio goes up. And so you have to sell a bunch of stocks in order to keep your risk constant. And that selling just causes the volatility to, volatility to spike even more. Again, like this is a mechanism I'm I'm not 100% well, I agree with you about. on the second one, because the people who are running these risk parity funds, they're not idiots. Unlike the people buying XIV. Yes. But I I do disagree, though, if we're talking about the movement we saw, especially the movement we saw at close in VIX. On the Tuesday. Yes. Almost certainly had to do with the fact that these funds have to rebalance every day. So if the VIX is going up and you're short the VIX, you have to buy more VIX contracts. Sure. And you can see that in the VIX, but what you don't see that in is actually in the Dow. Yeah, that'll agree. With well, yeah. so this was this was the thing people were arguing about. They're like, you know, why are stocks selling off in response to what's happening in the VIX? And oh, so, I, no, I don't or, think. I think it's the other way. I mean, the the VIX is clearly spiking in response to volatility in the stock market. It's not the other way around. So you don't think there was like a feedback loop at all? Because that was no. that was sort of the thing that like Robin was suggesting in his article that there were a lot of people who think there was a. Feedback I think there loop. was somewhat of a feedback loop. I I, I don't think it's as simple as. I think that you had legitimate volatility in the market that then caused these products to start to essentially decline in value. And that created the necessity for them to buy more VIX contracts that caused the VIX to increase more, which I do think generated a little bit of a feedback loop. On top of that, you have people in this space in the market who know how these products operate. So when they saw the movement in the VIX, they knew what was going to happen at close. So they could kind of try to front run that and then even exacerbate that further. Right. And I and I totally understand that the vol traders can front run things and the VIX traders can front run things. And what you saw like at 3.59 p.m. on a certain day in futures contracts in the VIX is is artificial. I just don't think that any of that really had much, if any, of a feedback loop on 
the level of the stock market. Yeah, I agree with that. So you think? So what do you think was driving the level? Was the, were these just two things that were kind of happening simultaneously and separately? Or no, like VIX goes. The, no, it's the it's clear which is the dog and which is the tail. Okay, the the stock market is the dog. The stock market is the thing which is seeing like a fifteen hundred point drop in one day, and everyone's like, "Wow, that's volatile." It hasn't yeah. been volatile in a long time. That causes VIX to go up, and then. A whole bunch of other stuff starts happening in volatility trading once the volatility actually goes up. Right. The, what I do think is interesting, if we're thinking about what potentially could happen now down the line, is that you have a much larger portion of the market that are in these type of short vol products, whether we're talking risk parity, risk targeting, short gamma strategies. Now, if they start to unwind and rebalance, that could involve more actually affect on the stock market because Maybe. of how those because of how those products are structured. Also, if you do continue to see a significant amount of volatility, you can have just normal traders also having to rethink how they're currently allocated because right now a lot of the market is fundamentally short vol. They're not selling vol short, but they're short vol in the sense that their portfolios are structured so they're farther on the risk curve. So when volatility increases, their portfolios are probably going to decline. So this is another way of saying in like, you know, um, sort of first derivative terms, basically what we all understand intuitively, which is that when the stock market becomes riskier, you become more cautious. And that's ba and it's like when you start seeing crazy spikes up and down in the stock market, especially spikes down in the stock market, you start like becoming less complacent and having a little bit more of a sort of itchy finger in terms of like making trades. And so, yeah, I think as we move into an era of volatility, and I think there's a good chance that the volatility is not going to disappear tomorrow. It'll be here for a little while. Um, you know, volatility begets volatility. And, and so that's one of the reasons why, like I've been joking a little bit about how um, the short vol product which hasn't died um not xiv but it's this other one called svxy you know it looks like it's a gr screaming buy right now um <laughs> because it's dropped from like 100 to 10 um but mm. like on the one hand yeah it'll probably go up but on the other hand it might well go down but more to the point even if it does go up you don't know how long it'll stay up because this volatility having shown its face is almost certainly going to recur. We've had a weirdly, you know, it's quiet, it's too quiet thing yes. going on for a couple of years now. And I, I feel like now people have realized it's it's not quiet anymore. Right. And I, I think that that quiet is actually important because what happened with a lot of investment funds is that they went in, a lot of them went into cash or, or holding a higher than expected level of cash because they knew that the market seemed a little too frothy. So you have a lot of dry powder on the sidelines right now that can come in, which uh, money that essentially can come into the market if we start to see further declines. Also, you now have a lot of companies that are going to be a little bit more cash rich because of the tax cuts. So you could see more stock buybacks as a way to also support stock prices. So I don't think anyone should be overly concerned that like the world is going to collapse. It's not. I mean, if you look at where you know, corporate bond yields, we haven't seen the type of move you would you would expect if there was a really concern about fundamentals. 
Right. And I feel like that's actually shown itself in retail behavior, like the normal mom and pop like shareholders out there, as far as I can tell, are not panicking. Like what we're seeing is volatility in prices. What we're not seeing is panic selling. What we're not seeing is a bunch of people phoning up their brokers and saying, eek, eek, this stock market is too scary, sell my stocks. And that's good. You shouldn't do that. And you're right not to do that because just because because while stocks are indeed volatile, they're still you know, perfectly expensive and well-priced and a long-term investment. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Let, let's segue on to Stephen Cohen, who used to be called SAC Capital Management because that was his initials. Um, but then, But then he had to pay a $1.8 billion fine and rename himself to Point Seventy Two Asset Management um, and run... He was down to his last eleven billion dollars, and he owned all of it. I mean, this is this is a, a sad, sad tale. It's hard yes. scrabble. Yep. But now the agreement that he made with the government that he couldn't run other people's money is coming to an end, mm-hmm. and so um, some unknown number of billions of dollars—it could be three, it could be ten—we don't really know—is going to go back to Stevie Cohen, and people are saying, "Hey." Stevie, now that the stock market is volatile and now that you're allowed to run my money, you know, I always made lots of money from you in the past. So here, take my money back. So here's my question about this. Stevie Cohen got in trouble, his firm got in trouble, SAC, because of insider trading accusations. Mm -hmm. And Cohen himself never got nailed. They were never able to figure, like, prove that he was actually trading himself on this stuff. Because he could or, not recall. He could not recall. Anything. It, exactly. He got really good <laughs> advice from his lawyer. Um, masterful advice. But they, they nailed a few of his underlings. Um, and it seems like everyone kind of knows what was happening. There's been a whole damn book written about it at this point. So why are people giving him their money now, given that he they are every single fucking restriction you can think of has been put in place to keep this guy from doing insider trading of any sort? Like, what makes anybody think that this is he's the one to run their money now? Uh, so the first answer to that question is that even if you are 100% convinced that Cohen and SAC Capital were engaging in insider trading... Okay. Um, that does not necessarily mean that the source of most of their profits and alpha was insider trading. Mm-hmm. So you can, and, and remember that the investors in Cohen's hedge funds never needed to pay any fines. They were fine just like taking the returns. So if they believe that most of those returns were due to something other than insider trading, then they'll be like, okay, like, go ahead and do what you were doing just without the insider trading and I'll take those returns. Right. But if you look at the types of returns he was posting when he was able to use his expert networks, (laughs) 
he was posting like 30% returns, which wasn't surprising when you potentially are using these expert networks. Let's look at his returns the last few years. 10% last year, 1% the year before. And not only are those returns just pretty lousy if you look in relation to the market, he's only getting those returns because he's using an incredible amount of leverage. So the the question I, I guess I'm sort of wondering about that is whether you should judge him on the last two years when there's been historically low volatility. Like the one thing he's been good at is sort of judging the market as it goes crazy. And like, as you know, he needs movement. And uh, last year, for instance, I think, was like the lowest volatility in 53 years, like literally Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a half a century. So it could just be the last two years weren't representative because it was a particularly bad environment for his style trading. I mean, I guess I'm playing devil's advocate here. We're also talking about a style of trading. And and yes, he is, from what I've heard, somewhat changing with the times, but he is, you know, the kind of epitomizes active management, right. he's stock a, picking. He's a trader. Like yeah. He's, a he's trader not an investor, he's his, a trader. Right. The way you made money in 2017 was by putting all of your money into the market broadly, going to sleep, waking up a year later, and then seeing that your money had grown by 23%. And that is the exact opposite of what Stevie Cohen does, which is he's in there minute to minute, hour to hour, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. And that was a dreadful way to make money in 2017. So it's hardly surprising that he underperformed the market. Now, in this kind of a market where we have the return of volatility, it's entirely um, possible that his kind of, I'm going to trade this, I, I love volatility, I can make money off volatility strategy, will outperform the market. Right, except in order to do that, you need people on staff who know what they're doing. And if you look at who he's been able to hire, he cannot hold on to senior management, senior portfolio managers. He is hiring young people who have never seen a bear market because no one who has serious talent in this field, I would imagine, is going to work at a firm where you have this tremendous amount of oversight you are working for someone who was involved in a firm that had lots of legal issues. And on top of that, because of those legal issues, now you can't get additional bonus when you come up with investment ideas the way you could in the past. So currently, we're not seeing that he's able to populate his firm with the type of people who could perhaps generate impressive returns. And what's more, he is continuing to charge substantially more than the standard two and 20 that hedge funds normally charge. Oh, he, he what is it like two and a half and 30? 2.75% in 30. And on top of that, he's asking for a three-year lockup of your capital. So you can't take your money out. And in all a volatile of, market. And <laughs> all of this means that the amount of OPM that he gets, the amount of other people's money that he gets is going to continue to be almost certainly substantially lower than the amount of his own money that yeah, I mean, he's he, trading. That what you're doing is you're kind of adding a little bucket alongside his very big bucket. Um, and I should imagine that the allocations that people make to his fund are going to be relatively small in comparison to the allocation, you know, their overall amount of money. No one's going to give Stevie Cohen half their cash. I would certainly hope not. Uh, but like... On on some level, I feel like he's bound to get some people's cash. And on some level, that's going to be an interesting hedge because for partly the reasons that you've said, like he is very different from everyone else. You're kind of 
diversifying maybe <laughs> like into crazy active management like there, there was, what is that the uh, warren buffett like diversification <laughs> well, it's this idea that if you're if you're diversifying for diversifying sake then that's not a good bet ah i like that so like is so uh, bloomberg mentioned or maybe business week mentioned that he's trying to maybe get into like the world of quants and stuff is there any reason to think he could do that successfully? Is there anything about his personality that suggests he even knows how to judge who a like how to judge a smart quant trading strategy? Like, I, I guess just to ask that question, maybe he could move along at the times. I don't know. Or, or even whether a smart quant trading strategy is what the world. We, I think no one knows. No one's seen a world like this. Yeah. No one's seen a world with stock at these kind of valuations, interest rates at these, you know, volatility at these lows and now suddenly coming back. Um, we're entering very uncharted territory. Uh, we should mention that we're now in, officially we're in correction territory in the stock market. It's down more than 10% from the highs. Um, and people are using that term to go, oh, jolly good. Like now that's like a familiar term that I'm familiar with. And like I know what happens when there's, a correction in the stock market and that means sometimes it goes down sometimes it goes up and people are trying to sort of place the activity in in the markets in a context that they understand um my my general feeling is that like stevie cohen is not particularly well placed to trade this market but then again neither is anyone else and ex ante and we're only really going to find out in you know 18 months to two and a half years who really managed to get it right? Are we like, this is this is going to be a dumb question, I think, but I just feel compelled to a ask it as like the financial market's child in the room. Um, like, is this going to be sort of like the early 80s in a way where like at the time bond trading suddenly just went nuts because all of a sudden interest rates were doing interesting things and people all of a sudden like glommed onto that and tried to figure out how like that seemed like a place you can make money are we just like it seems like that's kind of almost what's happening now that interest rates are making a comeback all of a sudden that could make like bond trading the the, the kind of star of the show rates yeah rates is an interesting world yeah. And and it's been well, it's been a kind of boring world for a long time, and it looks like it might get a bit more interesting. the The difference is that like trading rising rates is an incredibly different skill set from trading falling rates, and like there's almost like no one alive who can remember a world where they were making money trading rising rates. And so again, this is a whole new skill set that people no one know knows who has those skills, right? And you, it's also just a completely different rate environment if you're looking at how low rates still are. And if you look at like long term curves, there isn't an expectation that we're going to see the types of rates you saw in the 80s. Yeah. And also, we are now coming after the financial crisis where we saw central banks step in. And I do wonder if that will also continue to affect how how the market considers the rate trajectory. Because what do you mean? Because there's this idea of like the Fed put. Yeah. The idea the, that the plunge protection yeah, plan or whatever. This idea that at a certain point we think the like the central banks could step in in a more material way than we used to think that they did. Because 
what we saw in the financial crisis and post the financial crisis in terms of the impact of central banks on the economy has just been unprecedented. We've never seen this before. And so you could have investors having to factor that in when they're thinking, how high are rates really going to go? How Uh, high will Jay Powell allow rates to go before he starts stepping in and cutting rates and and saying, you know, the classic Alan Greenspan move of eek, the markets are freaking out, so I need to rescue. Yeah. Right. Or where do stocks have to fall before the central bank potentially starts stepping in? I guess that's not crazy now to think about because the you know, Fed the last few years uh, definitely delayed rate hikes when the markets went nuts and Powell was a part of that. I mean, actually 2015 was a good example when people thought that maybe rates would start going up and then China sort of got, started getting hairy and mm-hmm. people said, oh, well, maybe we'll hold back for a while. We don't want to cause any more storm and drain than there already is. So, yeah, I guess that is that is something to factor in. But my I, right now, for the time being, yeah, um, all of the messaging from central banks around the world, but specifically from the Federal Reserve, is we are not looking at the stock market. We are we are looking at inflation. We are looking at unemployment. Those are the things we're meant to be looking at. And we are trying very, very hard to bring back rates back up to some vaguely normal level. Yeah. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Okay, let's talk about Seamless and other delivery apps, Postmates, because honestly, we've had enough markets talk. And this is one of the most interesting stories I saw this week, um, which is all about basically, if you're a restaurant and some delivery app service thing comes along to you and says, hey, you can make extra money by sending your food out for delivery. And you're like, that's great because it's just free found money on the table and you sign up for it and you get all of this free found money and it's awesome until you realize that you're cannibalizing your own customers and that the people who would otherwise perhaps have come to your restaurant and left a nice big tip and probably ordered a bottle of wine and generally helped you out in a big way are now ordering food from you for delivery and they're spending less money. And what's more, a large part chunk of the money which they are spending is winding up going to the delivery company rather than to you. And and so restaurants are emptying out because their food is being eaten in homes rather than in restaurants. And that's really not good for restaurant economics. Well, what's fascinating to me about this, the New Yorker piece about it, was that it's not just that restaurants are 
kind of nervous that maybe delivery is actually a bad business for them because the cut that's seamless and all of them are taking is so large. But it's that they don't know, right? Like, that's the thing. It's that, like, you know, the, the reporter goes and interviews all the, like, Veselka in New York, which is this old East Village place that's been around forever and all these other restaurateurs. And that's some, you know, what's going on here? And they say, we, we can't tell <laughs> if this is actually good business for us or not, if it's losing, we have a hunch that we may actually be losing money in the end off it, but we, we just aren't sophisticated enough when it comes to tracking our own books. And, you know, it really kind of, um, it, it really sheds a light on how weird this part of the economy is that you think, okay, well, if this is not working out for restaurants, the rash, a rational restaurateur will just, you know, probably stop trying to order or offer delivery through these that, services that doesn't or, but work it doesn't, though, it, it, because that there's a collective action problem because well, there, if if the problem is that human beings in general i'm not going to use the millennials word yeah. um, if the problem is that human beings in general are ordering in more than they used to and eating out less than they used to that they if the restaurant meals are increasingly being ordered for delivery rather than in the restaurant then a unilateral decision by a single restaurant to remove themselves from that market is a bad idea. Well, it's sort of not if you're actually losing money on, which is what they, some of these restaurateurs are saying. They're saying we may actually be losing money on each order. We are not. It's not just that it's a thinner profit margin. It's that it may actually be a negative for us in the end. And so if that is really the case. You should not be on that service. It's a bad idea. You are better off without that extra revenue because that's that revenue is in the end. You are better off not chasing that extra revenue. Um, I do agree. There is some collective action problem if it's if it's a few restaurants trying to eke out very small returns. But it's just it, it it's hard for anybody to figure out if they're getting screwed. Essentially, you're not wrong in that it yeah. would seem logical that if you're losing money doing something, you would perhaps want to stop doing that. The problem, though, is that when you have so many people now finding out about restaurants, if you're saying, like, I want to eat Thai food right now, where I'm going to look at Seamless and see what are the restaurants near me. If you're not on that list because you're not delivering, you're probably going to have a harder time reaching new customers. Because if people now are used to just ordering in food, that's how they're going to access restaurants. They're probably yeah. not going to just say, well, I'll just go walk down onto Montague Street and see what's available. It's, it's a discovery platform. And more to the point, it's, um, it's a new business model. And one of the things that you have to be careful about is looking at the restaurants that you're talking to. That If you're looking at a restaurant like, say, Vaselka, which has been around for 3,000 years and has always been based on the old-fashioned business model of people come to my restaurant and they order food and I serve it to them, then you can see how it's harder for them to adapt. Um, but we all know these small restaurants with like a handful of tables in them, which seem to do perfectly well and last for for years and years and years without anyone ever eating at them. And the reason being that they've managed to build a really strong delivery service and so you it's a question of how do you like orient your entire business around you know a, a new world where there's more delivery and less eating in and and it's harder for established restaurants to do that than it is for smaller and newer restaurants to do that well it's also but what, part of what's interesting is it's also hard even for restaurants that did orient their entire business around delivery to survive in, in kind of a seamless world. Because before, like my sushi place down the street just had people call them and they weren't giving a cut to a, you know, a, 
a platform. Now they are giving a cut of their delivery business, which is what they were thriving on anyway to the platform. And it's not clear how much, you know, and how many additional orders they're getting as a result of it. So it's not just about figuring out how to do delivery. It's about figuring out how to do seamless. So and this is, I think, a good like thing we can throw into the Slate Plus segment this week is that it's not just delivery that there's this big question in the economy right now um about when do third-party services increase your revenues and help your business and when do they ultimately wind up just acting as a tax on your business and like collecting rents and while you know we're talking about restaurants right here this is also going on with movie pass right now where the theater owners are saying you know, on the one hand, yeah, maybe more people are coming to the movies and that's extra revenue from us. But on the other hand, we don't want to share that revenue with you because that's another expense for us, which in, in a world where like things are getting tighter. And especially if you're talking about going back to restaurants, I mean, restaurants margins are notoriously extremely slim, so they don't have kind of enough wiggle room as opposed to perhaps some other industries. But if you're in this new environment where people are used to consuming food in this way, to dealing with restaurants in this way, I don't think the option can just be taking yourself out of the equation. It is trying to figure out, well, how how do we function in this new universe? I guess the question which Jordan is asking, or at least which I'm taking from Jordan, is in this world of restaurants, which, as you say, has always been a pretty low margin world, are we now seeing a bunch of large foreign actors, these big corporations like Postmates and Seamless, swooping in, extracting rents, taking out money which would otherwise exist within the ecosystem, sending it off to you know, venture capitalists as dividends, and basically making the entire ecosystem worse for everyone and and or are we or are they credibly increasing the size of the pie for everyone? So one thing I think is interesting is the fact that seamless itself doesn't make any money. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's making money in But this. it has revenues. It has it is revenues, revenues, right? It's, it's not profitable, no. which right. is not surprising because what startup is profitable. Okay. Right. And I think this goes back to what Jordan, you were saying earlier, that many restaurants don't actually have the data to know what's actually happening. And maybe this suggests that this is one area where restaurants are going to have to change, that they are going to need to start collecting more data. Like they, too, will have to become a tech company that you in order to be able to survive, you have to first figure out what is happening. And maybe that's one thing we'll see. And and this is and this is reminds me of conversations which I was having years ago about open table and open table is another one of these services which comes in to restaurants and says like we want you to pay us money and in return for that money we will increase your business and restaurants again were very like uh, to this day kind of unhappy about that they're like uh, you know people are going to make reservations anyway do I really want to pay like one dollar per person per reservation to open table um and the answer is really get the data. Find out what the data is. Maybe move from open table to Resi or something like that, but get the data, find out what's going on, and that will help you navigate this new world. I do worry that this kind of raises the bar for starting a restaurant a little too high. Uh, and, and I don't worry about that at all because 
what we all forget is that the overwhelming majority of new restaurants have always failed and that maybe if we raise the bar for starting a new restaurant that might actually be a good thing yeah but it, it's a mom and pop industry in a lot of not totally but in new york it's a mom and yeah. pop industry for instance where you have a lot of immigrants running takeout joints you know small chinese places down the street which rely heavily on delivery and may not be able to survive in a seamless world and maybe that's just what we're moving to I or, don't know. or maybe they will be able to survive in the seamless world we will see let's do a numbers round because no one knows what's happening to the restaurant industry i know what is happening to people stuck in traffic according to the latest um estimates which just came out the total cost of traffic congestion in the united states is now more than 300 billion dollars i guess i should have a number right 305 <laughs> billion that's my number 305 billion is the cost of congestion in the united states now that's an annual number of which 33 billion is just new york city um it's absolutely enormous um number two in terms of numbers is is los angeles at 19.2 san francisco is 10.6 atlanta is 7.1 that's just the amount of economic activity which has been lost from people sitting in traffic Yes, which should at some point lead to our congestion pricing. One can but hope. Yes. If so, it can finally happen in New York. Yeah, any, right? we shall see. Uh, so my number is $8,589,869,056. Whoa. So that is the dollar price of stock that Google plans on repurchasing is that another one of those google numbers yes okay i love this i i know that wait wait not... give me that number again because it's normally either e or pi or something like that oh it's even more exciting eight billion five hundred eighty nine million eight hundred sixty nine thousand and fifty six all right i don't know what that is yeah there would be no way you'd be able to figure out what that is <laughs> so it's a perfect number oh okay so a perfect number is a number that is um the number itself is equal to the sum of its proper divisors. So like six. Is equal to three plus two plus one. Yeah, or 28. So these are, if you like numbers, it's like, you know, prime numbers are kind of magical. And so perfect numbers are like, especially magical. So I know we're not supposed to like share repurchases, but this just made me happy. This is just like reminding me back like of the days when Google was a bunch of like quirky math nerds. And yeah. we were all like, oh, they made, look, they're, they're called Google. <laughs> Yeah. Isn't that cute? And 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 the yeah, the number of shares they're issuing is the square root of two, and all of that yeah. kind of stuff. But no yeah. longer. Well, they still have a little bit of it. A little, yeah. It like surfaces every once in a while. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, my number is uh, two, as in two hour free delivery, as in. <laughs> Am oh, is this a Whole Foods number? This is the Whole Foods Amazon number, as in uh, Amazon is now going to start letting Prime members in a few select cities order, uh, yeah, or it's going to start delivering Whole Foods groceries to Amazon Prime members in a few select cities for free, two-hour delivery. Including in Austin, which is the head headquarters of Whole Foods, and this is, if it works, yeah. it'll, it'll expand. So, yeah, oh yeah. So, I, as, as listeners of the show know, every time Amazon does anything, pretty much, I just start racking myself over my on, my, on the one hand, the fact that I am a Prime member and I use the service constantly, and on the other hand, I am deeply worried about the future of this country because of monopoly issues and <laughs> competition issues. And so, finally, I just went and wrote a like first-person essay dealing with all this weird...
weird, like, Hamlet-esque bullshit I feel <laughs> about this issue. So you'll probably never have to hear me, like, go on about this again. But it's up online. I wrote a thing. It's, I think, the title something like, uh, yes, I will allow Amazon to deliver my Whole Foods produce, even though I know it's bad for the country. Um, is, it, is this on your personal Tumblr, or did Slate actually Sla- publish this? Slate published this. <laughs> it's got, like, a thousand people reading it right now. Hey. So I know that, like, uh, at this moment, so... Uh, I think we can all relate. <laughs> I, I, feel, yeah. I basically... I, I am speaking for everyone who feels deeply ambivalent about their relationship to Amazon and Whole Foods now. And um, I just I hope I can maybe make you, dear listener, feel a little less alone in this world if you feel similar <laughs> angst about this. OK, so listeners, if you if you live in Austin or which of the other towns, I think it's Virginia Beach, Dallas and maybe Cincinnati off the top of my head. Write to us. Slate money at slate.com. Tell us if you've done this, how it compares to whatever Whole Foods delivery options you had in the past, whether whether you're feeling conflicted, whether you think there's a latter-day Shakespearean monologue to be like <laughs> brought out of this. Um it is Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Oh, the slings and arrows of outrageous <laughs> consumer fortune. Um <laughs> Trumpcast. Listen to Trumpcast on um Mondays. Wednesdays, Fridays, some, sometimes other days because Trump news never goes away. And neither do Virginia Heffernan, uh, Jacob Weisberg, Jamel Bowie, and the whole Trump cast crew who are going to be staying on top of the news, watching the president and trying to find out what on earth he is up to. Many thanks to Dan Schrader for producing this show. And we... We'll come back and talk to you next week on Slate Money. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.